I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Operation Peace for Galilee. The Lebanon War, the First Lebanon War, the 1982 Lebanon War. It's got a lot of names. First full-blown war the IDF engaged in across its border with Lebanon. The war ended that fall in September 1982, but 18 years followed. 18 nameless years. 18 years in which Israeli soldiers, 18 to 21-year-old kids for the most part, were stationed within Lebanese territory, embroiled in a long, drawn-out, seemingly endless affair. 18 years of casualties, 18 years of trauma, both for the individual soldiers and their families, and for the nation as a whole. One of those soldiers was named Mati Friedman, a Canadian who emigrated to Israel in 1995 and drafted to the IDF in 97. After basic training, Mati was stationed on a hilltop outpost named the Pumpkin. The Pumpkin became briefly notorious in Israel in 1994 when Hezbollah fighters staged an attack on the outpost, killing a soldier and wounding two others. Had this been all, the outpost wouldn't have garnered all that much attention. After all, hundreds of Israeli soldiers had been killed in Lebanon since 85. But this wasn't all. Mati Friedman is a journalist and author. His much acclaimed The Aleppo Codex, a true story of obsession, faith, and the pursuit of an ancient Bible, was awarded the Sammy Rohr Prize for Jewish Literature in 2014. His recent book, Pumpkin Flowers, A Soldier's Story of a Forgotten War, has been extremely positively reviewed by The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and countless others. We are so honored to be joined by Mati Friedman. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Let's start, I guess, with uh, that uh, that day in '94 when these Hezbollah fighters attacked the outpost. That wasn't all that happened, as we mentioned. So, what what did happen that day that was so different from all the other times? The attack on October 29th, 1994, which is a few years before I washed up at the same outpost, was remembered because it was one of the first really successful perception uh, operations. So the Hezbollah fighters come up the hill. It's a Saturday morning. The soldiers are a bit sleepy and uh, they weren't prepared for a frontal attack on the outpost and they're caught kind of by surprise. The, um, the, the outpost comes under artillery fire. Some of the soldiers abandon their guard posts, um, which allows the Hezbollah fighters to get up to the embankments of the outpost, which is on a hill overlooking one of the Shiite towns in South Lebanon. And they plant a flag on mm. the on the embankment. And old school. It's it's old school. It's kind of Iwo Jima. Yeah. Now the key uh, the key aspect of the Hezbollah operation is that one of their fighters isn't armed with a an assault rifle and he's not armed with an RPG. Uh, He has a video camera. Now to us in 2018, that's obvious, right? We're all filming everything. Everyone has a cell phone. Everything's uh, viral. Uh, This is 1994. So this is pre-Google, pre-Facebook, pre-iPhone, pre-internet, basically. Pre-viral. Pre-viral. The word viral had yet to be applied to information. No one had that idea. Uh, Israelis certainly didn't get that. But Hezbollah got it. Hezbollah understood in 1994 the power of an image. So they equipped one of their fighters with a video camera, and his job was to document the 
the attack. So you can find this on YouTube. The, sol- the, the fighters run up the kind of they, they advance toward the outpost. You can see the outpost getting hit by all kinds of um, munitions. And then they uh, end up kind of walking up the embankment. And in the last heroic moment of the video, you see one of the fighters planting a flag and it. It immediately evokes Iwo Jima and you understand that the outpost has been conquered by Hezbollah. You don't see what happens after the video cuts, which is that the Hezbollah guys run away. Mm-hmm. So the outpost was never conquered. In fact, they never even entered the outpost. It was basically a photo op. It was staged. They never planned on even. The plan, as I understand it, uh, was to get that image. Mm-hmm. The plan was not to conquer the outpost. They didn't um, have the idea that that was possible. It probably wasn't possible that Hezbollah fighters were outnumbered and outgunned by by the Israelis. They uh, they wanted an image that would galvanize their own supporters and that would demoralize the Israelis. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. The video is broadcast immediately the same day. It starts making the rounds. Satellite television had begun operating not not too long before. Commercial television in Israel had just started working the year before. So mm-hmm. until 1993, there was one channel in Israel, just the government channel, Channel 1. And then uh, commercial television starts here, Channel 2. So we're in a new media landscape and the uh, and, and information can move more easily. So this video becomes what we would call in 2018, we would call it viral. Yeah. And it makes the rounds in the Middle East. It's uh, uh, the, the image of the flag is published in the newspapers, not just in Arab newspapers, but also in Israeli newspapers. And this is recognized in Israel as a disgrace yeah. for the army and a very Rabin significant... Is the prime minister. Rabin is the prime minister at the time. The Rabin. The Rabin. And it's interesting, if you look at the newspapers that report on this on this attack you see it, that the attack is called the the disgrace habizayon in, mm-hmm. in hebrew soldiers are uh, tried by court martial and some of them are kicked out of the army people are furious that the idf has been humiliated is in, barak in, in this way the head of the idf i think so in 94 that's a good question that's a good question i'm almost certain yeah um itzhak mordechai is the defense minister and Barak must be the chief of staff yes. you can edit this part out of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> no. by, by now the listeners probably already know yeah probably uh, probably it. Uh, yeah. isn't it ironic though you know so the, what's interesting is that if you um if you look at the newspaper reports about this attack the the day after it's not the uh, top headline it's at the bottom of page one and in some cases it's not even on page one what the top headline of the day is is rabin at a peace conference in Morocco. Mm. So this is 1994. This is really the kind of explosion of hope and optimism around the Oslo Accords. Rabin is in Casablanca. He's meeting the King of Morocco. There's an economic peace summit. One of the headlines in the newspaper called Ma'ariv, one of the daily, the big dailies here, is Bank Bimkom Tank, a bank instead of a tank. So we're all kind of imagining the new Middle East where we're all going to kind of and... flowers and we're going to get in the car and go to Damascus to have hummus and they're going to come, you know, to the beach in Tel Aviv. And people really thought that way at the time. The newspapers yeah. were publishing these maps of the new highways that were going to, you know, connect us to the Arab it's world. Crazy. So this is all happening at the same time. So for people in 1994, that was the top headline. Rabin and the peace process was, was important. And these events in Lebanon weren't important in retrospect. The events in Lebanon were much more important than the peace process. But we mm-hmm. only know that, of course, you know, 20, 25 years later. Why do you think it is that Hezbollah was such an early adopter? I mean, in a way, it's like they're the uh, San Franciscans of the Middle East back in 94. Why were they? How did they catch on to this? I mean, we still kind of haven't, the Israelis. It's like we're still lagging behind when it comes to 
we like to take pride in our Hasbara, but we're not very good at it. But how, how, how was it that they realized this so early on? It's, it's a good question. The Hezbollah guys were always extremely smart. They were working hand-in-hand with the Iranians uh, at the time, and who are also very smart. It was a different level of enemy than the ones Israel had been used to in Lebanon. Israel goes into Lebanon to fight Palestinians, PLO, different Palestinian factions, and these are not very sophisticated opponents. Hezbollah is. It's sophisticated militarily. It's sophisticated in its understanding of, of media and how to use uh, the media of a free society against it. So, you know, if you have a good video, if the Israeli channels will show it and and the Israelis will start to kind of brainwash themselves and you can mm-hmm. demoralize the population in, in that way. These are, these are smart players. And I think that it, we in Israel often don't give them enough credit, not just Hezbollah, but today the Palestinians too, they understand the media game. Uh, I think it, it might be the case that a weaker side or a side that's weaker militarily, you know, finds ways to be strong. And one mm-hmm. way that a, that a weaker side can equalize is to use perception and use the media. And Hezbollah did a great job of that, not just in the flag attack at Outpost Pumpkin, um, but that was really the prototype. That was really the first successful um, uh, instance. And I think that if we look today at all the, the ISIS videos, which of course are much more Nasrallah's speeches. Nasrallah's speeches, which are you know carried online and passed around, and even the stabbing videos that we unfortunately had to watch here in Israel over the past couple of years, those are all in some ways children and grandchildren and great grandchildren of that attack in 1994. Mm-hmm. So that just to get us in perspective, why did we go to Lebanon in the first place? The long and painful story between Israel and Lebanon starts depending on uh depending on when you want to start counting but uh, most people i think would um would say that it starts in earnest in the late 1960s and early 1970s when palestinian groups that had been pushed out of jordan set up uh basically an independent enclave in south lebanon and use it to raid across the border and to attack israel and israel is increasingly drawn into lebanon lebanon um the, the state of lebanon doesn't really was a threat to Israel. The Lebanese have never really been interested in military, um, you know, victories there. You know, they, the Lebanese have their own complicated society and, and um, m- mostly they leave everyone else alone. But the entrance of the Palestinians into Lebanon changes the equation and it becomes a potent threat to Israel. So Israel's increasingly drawn in, into De- Lebanon. Demographically, what are we talking about? Like what, how, what was the size of the Palestinian immigration into Lebanon and what was the population well, before? Well, you've got um, you've got Palestinian refugees who arrive in Lebanon after the war here in 1948, mm-hmm. uh, but who, who don't become Lebanese citizens in, in large part because the Lebanese have a very delicate equilibrium between their own sects, um, the Christians, the Sunnis, the Druze, the Shia Muslims in Lebanon. And it's they basically don't... a country created by the French, right? Yes, yes. That's a complicated story about how Lebanon is created with the uh, predominance of the Christians who are allied with the French. And that would take us several hours right. to uh, to discuss, but the Palestinians kind of upset the the equation. And then after um, Black September, which is um, kind of a, an insurrection in Jordan against the king, uh, Palestinian militant groups move into Lebanon, and they set up in the south, and they set up in the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. And the first major incursion by Israel against this threat is in 1978. It's called Operation Litani, and um, the the significant one the one that everyone has heard of is the one in 1982 which we called operation peace 
for Galilee. And at the, at the same time, in the late 70s, Israel begins to support the creation of, of a security zone in, in the south of Lebanon along our northern border. Because at, they were bombing the north, right? Right, because the, the Palestinian groups who are the threat initially are a threat to the north. So the Christians in south Lebanon who are opposed to the Palestinians get Israeli support in setting up a kind of independent enclave in the south. This is all happening in the context of the Lebanese civil war, so the, the which starts in 1975. So the central government the central government in Lebanon has um, essentially ceased to function. So the whole country is kind of collapsing. And we have, Israel has an ally in South Lebanon in the form of, of the Christians. Mm -hmm. And that grows um, to the point where in, in the late 80s and 1990s, there's a, a Christian militia called the South Lebanon Army, which is allied with, with Israel. And those soldiers serve alongside Israeli soldiers in the security zone. I see. So the plan going in in 82 was to set up this security strip. Well, the the plan in 82 is complicated. The the ostensible plan is to drive the Palestinian armed groups away from the border. Mm -hmm. The real plan that was in the mind of Ariel Sharon was the defense minister was to get to Beirut, expel the Palestinians, uh, the, the PLO, the armed factions, completely from Lebanon and engineer the creation of a new Lebanese government under a Christian uh, domination that would sign a peace agreement with Israel. On that, the paper, it sounds like a good plan. Right. Does on it? Paper, really? On, <laughs> on paper, uh, if everything had worked out, perhaps that would have been a good idea. Of course, nothing in the Middle East or anywhere right. works, works in that way, and Israel ends up in a disastrous situation. It gets sucked into the civil war in Lebanon. It controls... Um, uh, much of the country by uh, at least until the you know kind of the the Beirut Damascus Highway, which is like the center of Lebanon. So the Israelis yeah. who thought they were carrying out a limited incursion into Lebanon find themselves controlling much of Lebanon within like what two weeks they were being Ve very quickly. And the the Syrian army enters the the fray, and the Israelis are fighting the Syrians. They're not just fighting Palestinian factions. It becomes something much yeah. much bigger. The Israeli ally in Lebanon is the Christian, one of the Christian leaders. His name is Bashir Jamal. And Sharon was counting on him being elected president of Lebanon and carrying out this grand plan, which is supposed to kind of re-engineer Israel's strategic situation. Mm -hmm. Bashir Jamal is assassinated by, by the Syrians. The plan goes completely awry. Jamal's militiamen enter Palestinian refugee camps in Beirut and carry out a massacre, uh, famous uh, famous and awful massacre, the Sabran Chatila massacres, which happened under, um, in, in areas under Israeli control. Which uh, today is a regular day in Syria. Which today is, un unfortunately, kind of a morning in, in Syria. But um, for Israeli society, it was a huge issue, and there was a massive protest in Tel Aviv. It was a huge against... issue because it was the Israelis were found kind of implicit in it. That's right. The Israelis didn't carry the massacre, but they were allied with the Christians, and they had allowed the Christians to enter the camps under circumstances that are not entirely clear. The Israeli army thought that they were going to kind of carry combat against terrorists in the camps. It's unclear exactly what they actually mm -hmm. thought, but the uh, investigative commission that looks into this after after it happens is very critical of the performance of the defense minister. And it's clear that Israel really made a very grave error in that, um, in that uh, in, in, uh, instance. Public support for the war really erodes and the plan, the big plan, falls apart, basically, and Israel begins to withdraw from central Lebanon until, in 1985, it sets up a, 
a narrow strip along our northern border, which is called the security zone. That's but that's really a remnant of the eighty-two invasion. It's all that's left of the eighty-two. Mm-hmm. And did the security zone, um, I would say, work out in the sense that um, were the northern cities bombed afterwards, or did it prevent, in fact, the bombing? of the northern cities that sense did it serve its, its purpose so the security when we say the security zone we're really talking about the uh, the strip um that exists between 1985 and and 2000 and then the question is did it serve its purpose was it worth the price that israel paid to be there what happens very quickly is that the the original enemy which is the palestinians that's why we'd gone into lebanon in the first place ceases to be significant the palestinians kind of are, are eclipsed and uh, a new enemy uh, appears. And that's another characteristic of, of kind of 21st century wars. You go in to fight one enemy and, and then you end up fighting a different enemy and that happens in Iraq and that happens in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. That just it seems to be something that happens. So uh, we weren't intending to fight the Shiites of, of South Lebanon. In fact, in 82, the Shiite population in South Lebanon had been happy to see Israeli soldiers because they were afraid of the Palestinians who'd been making their lives miserable. And Israeli Palestinians soldiers, are Sunnis. Just Palestinians the... are Sunni Muslims and the yeah. Shiites are the traditional rivals of the of the Sunnis. The Palestinian armed groups had been making life very difficult for the Shiite villagers in South Lebanon and they were happy to see... Happy, happy? Or... They were throwing rice. Happy. They were throwing the rice. Soldiers. Yeah. And there were, connect- there were uh, connections uh, mostly under the surface between Israel and some Shiite groups in South Lebanon. But that changes very, very quickly when it becomes clear that Israel isn't going to withdraw immediately. And the revolution in Iran, which had happened a few years before, kind of changes the way the Shiite population thinks. And that population, which had always been downtrodden in Lebanon, begins to rise. And Israel finds itself by the late 80s and around 1990, 1991, fighting a very potent enemy, which is not Palestinian at all, but but Shiite, and it's embodied in in this new group, which no one had taken seriously, called the Party of God or, or Hezbollah. The old threat posed by the Palestinians had been incursions into Israel. So we know about the Ma'alot massacre, mm-hmm. and there'd been massacres along the coastal road, and uh, Palestinian the hijacking of the bus, hijacking of the bus, and Palestinian terrorists had landed in rubber dinghies at Naharia, and there'd been mm-hmm. all kinds of terrible uh, incidents, and that's what Israel was was concerned with. That basically stops happening uh, by the late 1980s, around 1990. Rockets, but rockets are still a threat, and that should have, in retrospect, thrown in, into question the entire reasoning behind the security zone because you have a security zone the idea is to protect the border and to kind of prevent the firing of rockets into israel but when hezbollah wants to fire rockets they just fire them from outside the security zone and they go over the israeli outposts in lebanon and they land in israel so the security zone does not provide mm-hmm. uh, because initially it, were, it was mortars right that bombed and they were thinking okay they have this range but then when they got to this range they just right well this the palestinians the they actually the palestinians fire these old russian rockets called katyushas which um you can, there are references to them in the second world war it's a primitive weapon but effective um especially in, in kind of sowing fear and chaos maybe not necessarily it's not, you know, not not extremely accurate but it's just, not accurate yeah. at all and it um that it's not like you know the firebombing of Dresden or something like that, but it it's a terror weapon and it's, it's more effective like a long in that way. range mortar, right? It doesn't the explosion yeah. isn't that that significant. Oh, the Israelis are killed by it, but not you know thousands or, or anything like that. And um, and Hezbollah ends up adopting that weapon and using it. And as the years progress, they 
they get more accurate and more kind of potent weapons. But the security zone, while it might prevent incursions uh, along the border, and there are basically none uh, in the 90s, um, it doesn't prevent rocket fire. So there's a real question about the usefulness yeah. of, of the security zone. And it has to be said that, uh, I mean, you have to kind of consider what toll was incurred by the, the presence there because, I mean, over the years, hundreds of soldiers, I think six, seven hundred was the death toll throughout that period. And, I mean, you know, it is the place of the army to come and stand in, in defense of the civilian population, but, you know, to what extent? And if we're incurring hundreds and hundreds of deaths, is it actually The smartest worth way it? to go about yeah. it. That, those are the questions that pop up at the end of the at the end of the period and the the incident that really sparks the change in public thinking is a helicopter crash in 1997 because Mm -hmm. before that the number of soldiers killed in lebanon in in an average year in the 90s is maybe two two dozen something like that and there are years with less and there are years with a lot more 1997 for example more than 110 soldiers are killed in lebanon and that's really the turning point because as long as it's a small number of soldiers public attention isn't really galvanized but this helicopter crash, which is on Fe- February 4th, 1997, kills 73 soldiers who are on their way up to outposts in Lebanon. One of them was my outpost, the Pumpkin, and the other one was the outpost at a crusader castle called Bufour Castle. Mm-hmm. And the helicopters crash into each other, and 73 soldiers are killed. And then people in Israel start asking the question that you mentioned, which is, is this worth it? You know, mm-hmm. The defense of the border, which has been just a concept that we've had since the 80s, it, does that make sense you know, given, given the price that we're paying. And the answer that the public arrives at is, no, it's not worth it. Yeah. The crash, if I'm not mistaken, the crash gave birth to the organization of mothers. Um, but w- which, by the way, you write about in the, in the second part of your book is kind of devoted to that organization, which is called Four Mothers. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So the, um, the crash kind of is described in Israel as an, as an atom bomb going mm-hmm. off in the country because the country's so small and people know each other that if 73 soldiers die in you know one evening which is what happened almost everyone is affected everyone knew someone or knew someone who knew someone and the whole country is just kind of shocked and a few weeks later a group of mothers um, from kibbutzim in northern israel mothers with army age kids they form an organization that ultimately is called the four mothers named for the biblical um, matriarchs. Um, and they start lobbying for withdrawal from Lebanon. They say, okay, we have this you know, idea that we must be in Lebanon to defend the border, but this is actually not true. We're losing a lot more than we're, than we're gaining. And actually by being in Lebanon, we're prolonging the war. If we just pull out of Lebanon, the war will end. And that was the way a lot of people were thinking in the 90s. And if you, you know, remember the thinking about the Palestinians, the idea was withdrawals will resolve the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that seemed to happen in, in Sinai when Israel pulled out of Sinai and people supported a withdrawal in the Golan you know our enemies want pieces of land so we'll just cede that land and then the conflict will go away so this was a very 90s way of thinking and they um, they started lobbying it's a very kind of fringe group at first no one's really paying attention to them but the death toll gets higher and higher in 1997 there's a botched raid by Navy commandos that kills 12 soldiers there's a fire a kind of a brush fire that traps an idf ambush in south lebanon that kills another five soldiers and there's a there's kind of a steady 
drip of of deaths in that that year and the following year and public perception begins to to change about lebanon Mm -hmm. until by 1999 public support has been largely eroded for um for the presence in lebanon and when barack when ehud barack runs his campaign for prime minister that year he promises publicly that if he's elected within one year he's going to pull the army out of lebanon and some credit that promise with uh winning in the election Mm -hmm. it's it's uh it's incredible how such small i mean relatively small you know i don't want to diminish the value of any human life but how how such small casualties in israel have such a high i mean in the united states these probably sound like small numbers but five twelve it's you mentioned 73 had an effect on the entire country right it's it's just like a ripple and that's right in israel it works very differently than in other countries i mean if you read about the second world war you know read about the russian front in the second world war um you're talking about hundreds of thousands of of fatalities even in the yom kippur war here israel lost more than 2500 fatalities in in three weeks that's considered one of the highest of course and that was um that was awful in in lebanon we're talking about a death toll from the invasion in 82 to the withdrawal in 2000 we're talking about a death toll of about 1200 soldiers so in the security zone again the the numbers are a bit blurry it's hard to get good statistics but we're talking about probably between 400 and 500 fatalities Mm -hmm. again depending on when you start counting and who you count um these are very uh this it sounds it sounds small Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think about about wars but two things are going on here one is that israel is a very tightly knit society so the casualties hit home in a more painful way here in a country like the united states where you have kind of a military class that's removed from the general society so it's possible to live an entire life in the united states without knowing anyone who's in who's in uniform without having a relative who served in, in the army that's not possible here for most israelis we're kind of involved in it which means that we feel the loss as much um, today's you tomorrow it might be me that's right and it's my kid and it's my neighbor and it's my cousin so five soldiers doesn't sound like a lot but if it's you know the son of your second cousin you know that then you feel it uh, another thing that's going on here, which is also very interesting and this does apply to the west and to america's conflicts in iraq and afghanistan is that it almost doesn't matter how many soldiers are killed because the public effect of a death isn't necessarily quantifiable. So, you know, if you have one soldier killed and his photograph is published in all the papers, the public will feel the loss of that soldier in a kind of paradoxical way more than they might feel the death of 200 soldiers whose names you can't remember and who are just a blur. You see this guy, you know, his parents are interviewed on television and you... Um, you're hit much harder. So even though the number of deaths might not be too high, the public perception of loss um, and grief is is very real. And that's what starts happening here. Mm-hmm. The army's saying, listen, these are not serious losses. I mean, yeah. for, for, for an army, this is not, you know, this is the number of traffic accidents in Tel Aviv. Yeah. But the public doesn't see it that way. I think there's, there's maybe another element also, I, I wonder, I'm not sure, but that in the states it's a it's a volunteer draft and here because it's compulsory it feels there's a sense that this life has been taken away from us whereas in the states you can actually kind of the families i feel like there's more of a sense of pride Mm. even when there's a lost soldier because it's like you know he chose to go give his life for the country whereas here it's it's a little different thank you for your service thank you for your service yeah it's a very different approach to military to military service and even though here too i mean there, there is a draft but basically, the soldiers in combat units are volunteers. If you really don't want to be in a combat unit, you can yeah. get out of it. And the units in Lebanon were mostly better 
units um but still the the you're right that the the draft and the kind of idea of universal service makes the deaths harder to and to you, bear you talk about that in the book which is interesting about how a lot of the soldiers are you know constantly like you know i i don't you, you first of all you bring up the the phrase which in the army is ubiquitous like broken dick which is basically describes the experience of an israeli soldier but you talk about how everybody's got broken dicks which for our listeners basically means that like they have lost all like <laughs> also all... a medical situation i do not wish <laughs> yeah. for my enemies it's not literal to make it clear it's a psychological it's, situation yeah, yeah it's like basically your will is being broken down and you have no more motivation it's the opposite of gung-ho yeah so but where all the soldiers are in this state and some of them are even given the opportunity to leave but somehow they find themselves even on their own volition sometimes yeah. back in this outpost right that happens to one of the characters in in my book who is his name is avi and mm -hmm. he doesn't want to be in the army and he hates systems and he hates authority and he uh, doesn't want to be there he wants to be in ireland and he reads a lot of books and he's imagining himself it's a real somewhere. person he's a real person the book's nonfiction, so this is a real guy and yet somehow he finds himself not only in an infantry unit but in one of the more elite companies in this infantry unit and, and somehow he keeps going back to this outpost in lebanon which is one of the most dangerous places you could serve they discover at some point that he has a spinal defect um mm. and the doctors tell him basically you know we can uh, knock down your combat profile and you'll get a desk job <laughs> and yet somehow this guy who doesn't want to be there who hates the army who doesn't you know believe in ideology somehow he rejects that offer and he goes back to the outpost and there are a lot of guys like that you meet a lot of them in the israeli army and i think the people looking at the army from outside they imagine kind of the movie portrayal of american soldiers so it's all gung-ho and people are you know are into it and they you know but my experience in a pretty good infantry unit in the in the army is that given a choice none of us would have been there mm -hmm. so we're doing it because we have to we understand that the country needs us to do it but no one likes the army and if you like the army and if you're too into it you're suspect people think you're weird that's not the appropriate attitude in a good yeah. combat unit you're you supposed to hate the book. everyone is cynical right you have to be cynical uh, otherwise it's it's strange right? yeah. <laughs> if you, why do you like that you know why do you like this so I, I think that in the in the kind of caricature of the israeli army that often gets promoted abroad people you know have a kind of a fantasy of what of what soldiers are but these are just kids who are going to be you know within a year or two they're going to be in college and then they're going to be accountants yeah. and computer programmers they're kids who in the united states wouldn't would never be near the army in most in most cases it's a very different not sure setup. it's still uh, i don't know i think about the shiva guys mm. i don't know if what you say apply to them nowadays these are people who are not cynical about it right or am i mistaken that's interesting you mean the the religious zionists in the army yes mm -hmm. i think i think you're probably right um the uh people who come to the army with more ideology are you know approach it approach it differently although you know there's the kind of caricature of the of the religious soldiers and there are people like that and i know some of them but in my platoon we had you know there were maybe four uh who four religious soldiers and they were the same as everyone else so yeah. you know there's not there's the portrayal or that maybe the self-image of of religious Zionism, and then there's the soldiers you meet in the army who uh, even know, even the same... person who comes with the, the highest motivation, I think, gets sort of beaten into submission. Are you talking about point. yourself? Again? Yeah, <laughs> no, because you see it when you when you come from abroad with all the the Americans and the people from from you know 
Canada or South, you know, all the people who, who immigrate to Israel and then join the military, they usually come with a higher level of motivation and they're looked at by the other Israeli soldiers as what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. And, and why are you so excited? Do you remember your point of turning? It, yeah. It's when I, uh, when I slipped a disc also. Yeah. But it was, it was before that. I mean, even already in basic training, they kind of, you know, you, you, you quickly, uh, I guess appropriate that like, this is not where I want to be. Your mental disc is. Yeah. <laughs> Your mental disc is broken. It's slipped. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So, but, that, that, the, the worst thing to be in one of these units is the Hebrew word is mitlahev. Yeah. Which means it doesn't, there's no good translation for it, but it means like excited in a naive way. And that's overly the, excited. Overly yeah. excited. And really, that's the worst thing. You can be a cynic. You can be, you know, um, some, you can be a terrible person, but you cannot be a mitlahev. Yeah. So that you're not allowed to be. And the North Americans who, you know, the few North Americans who end up in, in combat units, they have that. They're what they would call, they would be called mitlahavim. So either yeah. you keep that up and you're a laughing stock or you adopt the general attitude toward the army, which yeah. is someone get me out of here. <laughs> Mati, why did you choose Avi, who is this protagonist in your book, one of them? Why did you choose this guy and what did this choice mean? In the, in the long run? There are a few uh, things that led me to Avi. I wanted to tell the story of this outpost, which in Hebrew is called Dlat, in English, pumpkin. The, the problem is that I only saw the outpost at the end of its life. I was in the army from 1997 to 2000, which is the end of the years of the security zone, the withdrawal and the destruction of the pumpkin happens in the spring of 2000. But I wanted to start earlier, so I needed a way to tell the story of the outpost before I got there. And Avi was there. He was there from 1994 to 1997. So precisely the years uh, between the flag incident that we were discussing, which made the outpost famous, and um, and my own um, arrival in mm -hmm. 1997, 1998. So the first reason was kind of technical. The second reason is that he was just an incredible character. And I, I got a hold of, of letters that he wrote. He was really an intellectual. He was much smarter than your average 18, 19-year-old soldier, much more cynical, much more capable of kind of stepping back a few steps and looking at himself and looking at this experience with the eyes of someone who isn't, who isn't there. And it's, if you've been in the army, you know that that's a characteristic that is not helpful to you. You don't want to be too smart. Yeah. Because it'll just make your life difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, know. No, I was just talking to my, to my girlfriend about the fact that like, I'm, I was reading your book and I was like, it's, it's lucky that I was in the army when I was so stupid because, you know, doing all the drills, even in basic training, it's a, it's, it's a miracle that I wasn't shot. Right. But there's so a maybe, reason, there's a reason they draft 18 year olds. Yeah. Because afterwards it, it becomes much more, much harder. <laughs> and, and Avi was already very smart at 18. So that made his life hard and he wrote about it in a way that's really striking i mean i certainly couldn't write like that when i was 18 19 and i didn't have the mental abilities that he had and that um that also made him um a good way i thought of illustrating what we were talking about who are these soldiers in good combat units they're not gung-ho guys they're not you know looking for blood and, and action a lot of the guys certainly in the part of the army i served in were like that they were kind of you know intellectual in some mm -hmm. way cyn cynical within a few years there was gonna be nothing military about any of them and he really he really represented that and then the third reason and the final reason that i that i chose obviously is that a war story needs war story war stories are warped in the same way that holocaust stories are warped which is that they're told by survivors so if you read holocaust stories there's always you know 
it always ends with escape or usually ends with um, mm-hmm. with escape because that's you know, who else is telling you the story and war stories are, are similar. It's told by the soldiers who, who survive. And that makes them untrue in a way because a true war story doesn't end like that or doesn't necessarily end, end like that. And Avi's story doesn't end like that. I don't know if I want to, if I should give yeah, away no exactly how it ends, but Avi's story doesn't end like that. And that was important. I thought it wouldn't be a true war story if it had a happy ending. No, you never met Avi. Because he had, he, I mean, your time, his time was over before your time started in Pumpkin. That's right. But was there anybody in Pumpkin that knew him that you served with? Or was it only afterwards that you had met people that met him? Only afterwards. Um, but we served in sister companies. He was in the engineering company of the Nahal Brigade. And I was in the anti-tank company of the Nahal Brigade. And those were two uh, companies that trained together. So I trained when I was in basic training in 1997. Um, I trained along with the guys from Avi's company, and the commanders of the new recruits were guys who knew who knew Avi. But that only I only found that out only uh, came up after much much later. I'd never heard his name at the time. I wonder if for you, Mati, you know, reading this book, um, it is personal for you. It feels, and when you write Avi's story, maybe in a sense, you're picking into an alternative universe in which you are Avi. I think that that is probably true, although I, I, I wasn't as smart as Avi. So I'd like to think that I, you know, I had that kind of perception and that I could write like that and that I was cynical in that way. I think that's a more comfortable way of me to think of myself looking back. But I, I wasn't like that. I, I was a good soldier. Um, I was a, a platoon sergeant. I believed in the mission and um, I was a... I think I was a much better soldier than Avi was. But looking back at that, I'm not sure if that's good. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure, I think Avi was a more advanced human being than I was at the time. Um, but I think that definitely I, I identify with him almost completely. And I um, spent a lot of time thinking about him and reading what he what he wrote. So I, I think I wouldn't have identified with him if I didn't kind of see myself in him, in his experience and in some you know, in, in some way. Hopefully this doesn't spoil too much, but how would you say your perspective changed from that, like, from that place where you were a good soldier, you were a sergeant, you believed in the mission to this, not necessarily, I mean, I'm not claiming anything about your political views, but I'm saying to this place where you could be a little bit more introspective and a little bit more retrospective and look at the thing from the outside. And Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I... Of course, I'm more aware now of what was going on at the time. You know, you want to think when you're a soldier and um, or you want to think in general that the people making the decisions are geniuses and they're kind of like a computer. You know, they always, it's just an algorithm. There's an event and they make the right decision. And and then you understand as an adult and certainly as a journalist, which is what I've been doing for the past 20 years, that it doesn't work like that. The decision makers are people. They're, you know. You're a peon. What's that? And you are a peon. And yes, and you're a small, you're just a small piece of some incredibly complicated picture. I mean, what was our outpost in Lebanon? It was just one tiny piece of this vastly complicated puzzle in the Middle East that involved not just us and Hezbollah, but the Syrians and the Iranians and the the peace idea of the 1990s and the Americans. And it's just this, you know, we were, you're nothing. And the proverbial shit show. Yeah, and 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 your loss means very very little yeah. in in the in the scheme of things there's a good reason not to know that when you're a soldier and israel needs soldiers and and the 
the bravery of being a soldier and the tragedy of being a soldier is that you're putting yourself at the disposal of of other people you're making yourself a tool of other people there's a mission you do it you might not understand it it might not be important it might be a mistake but you but you do it and that's why being a soldier that's the you know that's your contribution as, as a soldier even if you don't understand that at the time so as a journalist i have you know all kinds of criticism of the security zone i think it you know in general looking back it should have been um reconsidered much earlier than it than it was there was no reason for the security zone to last until 2000 um but as a soldier as a, someone who served in the reserves until two years ago and someone who, who has sons i understand that soldiers need to do what they what they need to do and not ask too many questions uh, the country needs people who will do this kind of work and uh it's unfortunate and occasionally but, tragic but it's not that i've thrown out the the baby with the bathwater. I understand that the mission yeah. was, was complicated and flawed, but that doesn't mean that I don't believe in the army, that I don't believe in, you know, the state of Israel and, and mm-hmm. the government and the, and the, you know, the setup here that enables our survival. Um, but do you think that perhaps, I mean, after your experience and, you know, from what you've said that most people who are in combat units actually want to be there. I mean, most people, you know, aren't, uh, if you really don't want to be in a combat unit, maybe that's the line. If you, but if you really don't want to be in a combat unit, you you, you don't you can get out of it. Question is, do you foresee a, a situation in which Israel could survive on the basis of volunteers, and does the does the draft have to be compulsory? I mean, do you think that that's that's possible? There are ideas floating around about turning the IDF into a, a professional army or an army more along the American model, but. There are two reasons not to do that, in my in my opinion. One is, at least two, but one is that Israel has the unique privilege of drafting the top 10, 15% of its population. So if you look at you know the American army and, and who serves in it or at other volunteer forces, you're not necessarily getting the, the cream of the crop, certainly not in combat units. But here, the guys who you meet in combat units are people who will go to university afterward and people who will be professionals and meet very smart kind of not militaristic people in combat units and that's very important that's that's good for the mm-hmm. for the country it makes the combat units much much better in my opinion the army is also a glue in this society which has a lot pulling it apart so 50 percent of the society 50 percent is that it's true you know we think of it as a universal draft but it's it at this point it's 50 50 percent uh but still for that 50 percent it's an important it's an important glue. The country has so much that's pulling it apart. There's so many disagreements, and the army is co- is a common ground that is very important. And that's not a military reason. That has nothing to do with winning the war. It's a social mission. So the army mm-hmm. here also has a social mission, which it's always had of absorbing immigrants and kind of education. There's an education core in the army, uh, which is yeah. very different than uh, than other armies. The last reason that I think you w- would want to be careful about turning into a volunteer force is... Um, is, is a reason of class. You don't want a situation where upper class people are not in combat and the people in the army are people who have to be there. That's a, mm. that's a situation you want to be very, um, very careful of. You don't want, you know, the kids from good families to evade military service and go to university and become or it's an economic choice, an economic, right. An economic choice that has a very, um, um, negative effect, I think, on 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 the society and a society like ours, which is so small and kind of fragile and in a very difficult situation. Everyone needs to be there; mm-hmm. um, otherwise, it'll cause a pretty serious split, and that I think we want to avoid. 
you know, Mati, you criticize um, the actions in Lebanon in the 90s and 80s. But looking at it today, Hezbollah is stronger than ever. And it seems like we're back uh, to square one. Israel is threatened, some say, by hundreds and thousands of missiles from Hezbollah, from Lebanon. And it seems, and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu just talked about it in the UN a few days ago, it seems that sooner or later we'll face a choice. It might be tomorrow, might be in a year, but the choice would be either we invade and maybe conquer, maybe even more than what we conquered back then, or we destroy Lebanon to the oblivion. But uh, so where does it put us in, in retrospect? The, qu the question of the threat from Hezbollah today and the question of what we should have done in the 80s and 90s, I think, are two different questions. The, um, we were in Lebanon you know, from 82 to 2000, and Hezbollah became much, much stronger. So our presence in Lebanon didn't weaken Hezbollah. On the contrary, our presence in Lebanon basically created Hezbollah. The Hezbollah camps are located outside of the security zone. The arms stores are outside of the security zone. So the fact that we're, we're there isn't preventing their, their rise. Um, the, uh, the withdrawal in 2000 hands them a pretty serious victory that really kind of makes them as a potent force in the Middle East. Look, we just drove out you know, the strongest army in the, in the region, and that helps them in a, in, a, in a pretty major way. That would have been avoided if we hadn't been there in the first place. So if, you know, in 82 or 85, the army had said, listen, we're done. Let's, let's get out of here entirely. And there were voices in the army saying that, including, by the way, Ehud Barak said that in 1985. If we'd done that, then we would have a different situation. But I'm not sure if it would be a better situation looking at the Middle East. You know, you wonder if the situation would be better or worse. But, um, but our presence there... The war against Hezbollah really builds Hezbollah, and the withdrawal in 2000 makes them into a regional, uh, into a regional player. So, uh, what we should do now about about this group is, you know, it's, is an excellent question. Hezbollah, which starts as, starts as a kind of ragtag bunch of nobodies from um, from South Lebanon, and you really see, you see the I've read the army intelligence stuff from the 80s, and you see that no one's taking these guys seriously. They've become, you know, one of the most important players in the Middle East. They've become a global a global player, and um, they uh, currently pose a threat that's you know, uh, exponentially greater than the threat they posed to us in in the '90s. And the answer to that threat will have to be a different, you know, different kind of a different kind of answer. Going into Lebanon and conquering, you know, ten kilometers of South Lebanon and holding it isn't going to solve the problem. Hezbollah is not there, and they're much more sophisticated than than they were. So a response to Hezbollah now is going to take an incredible toll, an awful toll on, on Lebanon, where Hezbollah has webbed itself into the civilian population to an extent where Israel will not be able to separate those two things. The rocket stores are in villages. The fighters are, are in villages. There's no way to differentiate, you know, a house from a Hezbollah command center. In some cases, there's a house on the first floor and a Hezbollah command center on the second floor. Uh, a war in Lebanon is uh, going to be tragic for us here in Israel, but it's going to be much more tragic for, for people in Lebanon. And I think that threat, which the IDF makes explicitly every couple of months, is one of the things preventing a war for the time at the being. moment for the time being. Yep. So on that note... <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to, if we can quickly touch upon, do we have a minute? A minute. A minute. You were back in Lebanon. Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> in 2002, I... 
I'm, I'm Canadian. Yeah. And so I, I have a Canadian passport and I look, I look Canadian and uh, whatever that means. And um, um, I decided that I had to go back. Now in, in Lebanon, when we were soldiers, we always used to joke about going back. That was one of the jokes that we, I mean, it's so beautiful, right? It's just, it's like. And the food. The food, although we, our, the food in our outpost wasn't, you know. Lebanese, great Lebanese food, but the, the the hills and the rivers, and it's just a stupendously beautiful country. So we used to joke about coming back, and everyone knew that was a joke. But I thought, wait just a second, you know, I can be Canadian, and I can really come back here. And that idea, which, you know, maybe not, might not have been the smartest idea I ever had, um, it just wouldn't leave me alone. So for the two years after the withdrawal, it just kept on kind of just sat in my head that I could go back I could go back to Lebanon and in the fall of 2002 I did so I flew back to Canada and I flew from Canada to Lebanon well with a name like Friedman it's not problematic it didn't seem to turn Con- on any warning lights uh, for people in Lebanon <laughs> in retrospect and people in Lebanon didn't it's not like they have a lot of contact with Israelis or or Jews it's not like they really care necessarily most of the people there most of the people I met were just were wonderful and hospitable and um, wanted to make sure I was having a good time. Lebanese people really like Canadians. I mean, everyone likes Canadians. There's what's not to like. But <laughs> there's a big Lebanese community in Canada and everyone has a cousin in Ottawa and, and Montreal. And people are constantly asking me, do you know my, you know, do you know my uncle? He lives in, you know, Winnipeg. And um, I spent about two weeks in Lebanon and explored the whole country. So I was in Beirut and I was in Baalbek and I was in the north. And I... Can you go back to the... And I went back to the pumpkin. That was the idea of the of the trip it was compli- it was a bit more complicated because the south was and, and is still controlled by Hezbollah so I had to take a cab I took a service taxi from Beirut to Tyre and from there I took a cab and um, told the cab driver a whole story about why I wanted to go to this deserted hill that I couldn't possibly have known about unless I had been there before so how that happens is something I What's... spell out in the book but okay. um, but I did I ended up making it back to the outpost I stood on the ruins of outpost pumpkin which had been blown up by my company uh, two years previously and that's the the last part of this book is about going back there as a civilian and what I what I found and what I didn't what I didn't find wow amazing so you, so you are crazy <laughs> I think we can uh, we can assume... <laughs> I made it out here I am sitting no, no, here that's amazing that's incredible um, and it makes for an amazing book so guys you have to check it out the, um, the pumpkin or pumpkin flowers sorry a soldier's story of a forgotten war it's on Amazon Absolutely. Kindle everything. everything and also previous books and also there's an upcoming book does it have a name yet yes it's called Spies of No Country it's about four of Israel's first spies in 1948 I have an alternate name, Fauda Origins. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, look up, look out for that. Also, the the previous book, uh, which we spoke about, the Aleppo Codex, a true story of obsession, faith, and the pursuit of an ancient Bible, is like uh, actually you went after the original, the the most, the the oldest version of the Bible, the written Bible, right? right? The oldest and most accurate version of the Hebrew Bible is yeah. a manuscript called the Aleppo Codex, which has a pretty interesting and dirty story yeah so check out uh awesome. mati friedman's books so before we go we have a collaboration with the jewish journal they're at uh, jewishjournal.com and in there you can find interesting pieces about israel about american jew uh, jewry and whatever so check them out at jewishjournal.com with uh, shmuel rosner yeah shmuel shmuel rosner <laughs> is there Yes. Um, and also, guys, we take uh, donations because we do this on our free time. So if you want to, check it out at 2njb.com slash donate. Anything uh, else? You have like a Facebook or website? Uh, 
I have a website. Yeah, it's just my name.com, matthewfreeman.com. I cool. also have Facebook, but I find that the world has become completely insane. So I try to um, <laughs> open it as little as possible. All right, guys. Cool. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It has been incredible. And bye, guys. Bye.